Father, we thank you so much for tonight. I pray, Father, that we would come before you in humility. I pray, Father, for all the believers in the room, Lord, that your word would have a transforming result in each and every life. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to recognize where there is still worldliness in us that needs to be rooted out, that needs to be removed. And, Father, for us to recognize it, we actually have to be able to define it. And I pray as we do that tonight, Father, that it would be something that would be convicting but also empowering, knowing that by your Spirit we have the ability to put these things to death. So, Father, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for everything you will do here tonight. We pray us in Jesus' holy and mighty name. Amen. And you may be seated. So we're continuing through these three verses that we have been working on over the last few weeks, and we've got two more weeks counting tonight in this text. That is Romans 11.36 through Romans 12, verse 2. And I want to remind some of you, or maybe for the first time, introduce you to a biblical character that you may not be familiar with. And the name of this biblical character is a man named Demas. If you would keep your place marked here in Romans and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're introduced to Demas here in a way that probably is not the most flattering way to be presented in the Word of God. But something we must recognize as we're flipping to this text is this isn't the first time that we have heard about Demas. And in fact, if we look at the end of Philemon, Demas is spoken of in a very positive light. And even in the book of Colossians, he is mentioned as well. And he is someone that the Apostle Paul would call a fellow worker in Christ. This is a man from the Apostle Paul's perspective that genuinely loved God. He served God. He sacrificed for God. And yet, something happened in his life that was possibly unexpected by those that he did life with. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 10, it says this, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So we have an individual here that has deserted the Apostle Paul. That is, they did mission work together. They worked in churches together. And at some point, Demas had a fork in the road where he decided that I'm no longer going to do what God desires for me to do. And instead, I'm going to do according to these worldly desires that are in my heart. Or another way to say it, that Demas now desired the world more than he desired God. As we consider this, I would also like us to turn to Matthew chapter 13, where this is a parable that over the next few weeks on Thursday nights, we're going to be going through the parables, and this is one that we are going to be addressing, but it is a parable that is definitely okay to visit multiple times. But I want us to just consider verses 20 through 22 in Matthew chapter 13, where the word of the Lord says this, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So an individual hears the word of God, they receive it with joy, but then something happens. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises, on account, and I want you to get this, on account of the word, this is very important, 
immediately he falls away. Or, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. What is interesting about this parable is it doesn't give us a timeline. It doesn't say that this could happen in three months or six months or a year or five years, but it warns us that the world is always a danger to us. Even if I am in Christ, Demas is giving us an example that the world is dangerous. The desires for the world is dangerous. But before we even start getting into this, we have to, I guess what you would say, define what the world is so that we know what we are up against. And this is where Romans chapter 12 is incredibly helpful. Because in verse 2 it tells us this, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So every person who calls themselves a Christian should desire to know the will of God because it is supreme to anything else we could do in life. But the problem is that we have other desires in us, even as Christians. And those desires at times are for the things of this world. That is, we are tempted to be worldly instead of holy. And so often in our lives, we don't even recognize where those lines are because we are so confused about what it is to be a Christian and what it is to be worldly and where those lines are because we are not students of the Word. On your notes, I have this quote. One of Satan's schemes is to convince us of the supremacy of good things. I want you to hear that. One of Satan's schemes is to convince you of the supremacy of good things. Isn't that interesting? That Satan, in one of his schemes, wants you to have good things. Like, good things in this world. Why in the world would Satan want me to have good things? Not only does he want us to convince us of the supremacy of good things, he also wants us to be willing to sacrifice for good things. He wants us to be willing to count the cost, to give up things for good things. And you're saying, Pastor, what's the problem? Well, here's the end of the deception. So that we devalue the best thing. Satan is all about distraction, about getting your affections off of God and really onto anything else because he desires for every person who claims Christ to be conformed to the world. That is, he is trying at all times to woo you with worldliness. He wants you to be distracted with good things and forsake the best thing, which, by the way, is Christ. Or, a life fully committed to knowing, enjoying, and proclaiming Jesus Christ. This is the definition of what it means to offer myself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That is all of me. And so in me giving all of me, I also have to deny something that I want. Great, strong desires that are really burning when life gets hard. And if I do not know what the Word of God says, when life gets difficult, I'm going to fall into these traps that Satan sets up all over the place for me to fall into. I want to remind you of a working definition we have of worship. Worship is a humble, 
So when I think about worship, me living this life of worship, is a, it is a humble, that is, not earned by me. It is a fearful kind of worship, that is, it's not controlled by me. And yet it is an intentional kind of worship, that is, it is to be acted upon by me. A thankfulness for a worthiness that, by the way, you can't create, but has been given to you through this process that we call, in this big theological term, justification. That is, you have been made right with God because of the work of Jesus Christ, and therefore, positionally, you are righteous, and that position never changes for those that have, of us that are in Christ. And this was bought by Christ to enjoy Christ by glorifying Christ. And so with that said, I encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 17. And there's really two main texts that we're going to be going to, and this is one of them. And I want you to hear the words of Jesus here because these words are incredibly important in light of what we've been going over in Romans chapter 11, verses 36 through 12 to. So in John chapter 17, starting in verse 14, Jesus says this, I have given them your word, a gift, Jesus has given his disciples his word, and he has given everyone in this room his word. It's a gift. Why has he given it to you? So that you know his will. So that you know what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that you know what it looks like to live a life that isn't worldly, but instead is a transformed life in accordance to the word. So Jesus has given this to the disciples, and he has given it to us. And then listen to this interesting statement. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Christian, this is such an important distinction. You might say, well, Jeremy, you haven't even defined what the world is. We're getting there. But before we even define what the world is, you must understand if you are in Christ, you are no longer of the world. That is, you've been transformed, and there's going to be a continual transformation, and the world isn't going to like the way you think and the way that you act any longer. That does not mean that every person on the planet is going to be hostile towards you, but I can tell you this, they're going to be hostile towards the way that you think. They're going to be hostile towards the way that you live. They're going to be hostile towards this idea that Christ is worthy of everything. They're going to be hostile towards that. And I have to understand that when I live the way the Word of God has commanded me to live, it is going to cost me something. See, a lot of Christians do themselves a disservice. They view men like me, who are behind pulpits like this, as just people sharing their opinion on something. It's just simply their view, and this is what they believe at their church, and there really isn't a universal truth that is going on out there. And very few of us would say, yeah, I affirm that. There's not a universal truth. But so often we don't take serious what is said in places like this. We just simply don't take it serious. We almost consider like, that may be true, but we don't have an intentionality to know if it's true. And every single time that something is said behind this pulpit, you should care whether what is being said is true or not. Because if it is true, then it is going to have a drastic effect on your life. It's going to have a transforming effect on your life. It's going to do something to you that is going to make you distinctly different than the world when you actually believe what is being shared. He goes on. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. This is important. Just because we're no longer of the world does not mean that Jesus desires for us to be absent from the world. He actually wants us in the world. 
He doesn't want us to hide from the world. He wants us to be in the world. Why? Because the world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. God doesn't make the rocks cry out, even though he could. He has chosen instead to use men and women like you and me to proclaim his truth, not just in word, but in life. He wants us to be in the world, but not be of the world. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Why is this important? Because Satan wants to kill you. He wants to devour you. He wants to destroy you. And he does it in means that you would not expect. He wraps it in good things. Satan doesn't show up with a book bag of bad things and dump them out and show his hand and let you know, hey, I'm here to kill you. He doesn't come to you with knives and guns and weapons of warfare to show you he's here to take your life. He brings you good things that you naturally want to distract you from the best thing. And I need protected from that. And you need protected from that. And I have to live in a kind of intentionality to be aware that that's happening regularly because even though Satan is not omnipresent, he has put systems in place in this world that are constantly, constantly wooing mankind, including Christians, toward these kinds of things that we naturally love. He goes on. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Oh, is that important? Do you hold on to this like it's truth? We're in a world of chaos right now. And there are a lot of people looking for truth. They're looking for truth amongst a whole lot of lies. They're looking for something that is stable, something that is true, something that is strong, something that isn't going to change tomorrow. And I want you to know there is something like that. It's the word of God. And not only is there something like that, but that very thing, the Word of God, is what transforms people like you and I to no longer be like the world. And it is that very truth that we use to resist the one that is coming to destroy us, just like Jesus exampled for us. And by the way, the one that comes to destroy you loves to use the Word of God as well to twist it, to make you want good things instead of the best thing. See, there are so many ideas out there like this one. You've earned it. That sounds good. You deserve it. That sounds wonderful. Of course I've earned it. Of course I deserve it. Yet that is Satan offering you something that, by the way, is lesser because whatever he's trying to give you that you've earned or deserved is nothing in comparison to what you have not earned or deserved, which is Jesus. See, any of these things that you are tempted away from to elevate, to idolize, to to make an idol in your life is nothing in comparison to Christ. And yet, weirdly, despite all that reality, there's something in you that still wants it, even though you intellectually know Christ is supreme. Why is that? Because I'm in a warfare. I'm in the flesh. This just cannot be removed, but instead must be waged war against. And we do that by engulfing ourselves in the word of God. He goes on to say this in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Christ has given us everything we need to not just fight this battle, but to win this 
battle, but it is about proper thinking that it gives us the ability to do this very thing. It is about understanding that to offer myself as a living sacrifice is to be fully and completely committed to the Word of God in a way that when I hear it, I want to practice it if it's true, and if it's not true, I want to discard it because I'm desperate for truth because I live in a world of lies and distraction and temptation and wooing with really good things, ignoring the best thing. If you would turn with me now to 1 John chapter 2. This is where we start to define some terms. What does it mean to love the world? In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, this is what the word of the Lord says. This is a loving statement from John, by the way. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Just think about that. That's the Christian's command. John lovingly looks at all of us and says, there's danger to doing this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And then he says this powerful statement, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How important is it for us to not love the world then? If a distinction of my salvation, this is important, All we've got is observations. I cannot open up anybody's chest, look at their heart, and see if they're saved. But he says, if you see people claiming the name of Christ, and they love the world and the things of the world, take that condition incredibly serious. And if you look at yourself, and you claim Christ, and you love the world and the things of this world, take that condition incredibly serious. Then he goes on. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we know one thing right out of the gate. When he tells us to not love the world, he's definitely not talking about the people of the world. Because we know we have been commanded to love the people of this world. And in fact, not only have we been commanded to love the people of this world, we've even been called to love those who would stand against us as our enemies. So we know he's not talking about people. So what is it that he's talking about? See, we are not supposed to love what the world loves. We are not supposed to think like the world thinks. We are not to love the things of this world, that is, to pursue what the world pursues. That's not what we've been called to do. We've actually been saved from that. Think about that. You've been saved from pursuing the things of this world. That's a gift from God. You no longer have to pursue things, and why is it a problem to pursue the things of this world? The world is passing away. The pursuing of the things of this world is not an eternal pursuit, But instead, it is a temporal pursuit that will cost you your soul if it is not corrected and fixed. So therefore, understanding all of this is incredibly important, and I appreciate that John defines it, but for it to be defined first, as opposed to talking about the severity or the danger of it first, is to do you a disservice, because I need you to be fearful in a good way of the dangers of these things, so that you fear God in a way that causes you to put these things to death. See, when we don't fear God, we're definitely not going to be fearful of dangerous things in the way that God wants us to be. Not fearful in the sense that I'm afraid they can whip me, but fearful in the sense of 
they do not show the world that I'm madly in love with God. And in light of everything that he has done, remember Romans 12, we need to live in light of the mercies of God. And Lord forbid I would do anything that would show the world that I'm not motivated by this great mercy, by the things that I'm seeking out to pursue. See, my pursuits are evidence of my love. What I love, I pursue. What I love, I put my efforts into. What I love, I want to set my eyes on, my affections on, my efforts on, because I love it. If you were on trial for loving God, would you be convicted guilty by the description that I just said? That you set your eyes on God, you set your desires on God, you want to embrace God, you want to put God first place in your life, and you also know you can't unless God gives you the ability to do it. See, it's interesting to me, as we, again, should leave our place marked here, and I always tell you that, and sometimes I don't come back, but I promise you I'll come back to this text. If you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we see what our warfare is all about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 3. Christian, never forget your waging war. Never forget. You put your weapons down, just like in a war, you will die. You're waging war. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So that means there's a war we're waging, but it's not a fleshly war. That is, it doesn't look like the wars of this world. He goes on. For the weapons of our warfare, not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So what we're fighting for is the word of God. What is true and what isn't true? What should we do? What shouldn't we do? What exalts God? What doesn't exalt God? This is our warfare. This is what we engage ourselves in. And for so many of us as Christians, this means very little to us. And yet this is our warfare. This is what we buckle into. Because we've got to destroy arguments in every lofty opinion. With what? The Word of God. That's what we destroy these things with. We, we destroy them with the Word of God. That is, it doesn't really matter what I think or feel. It doesn't matter what you think or feel. It matters what does God say. And so if God says something, we do it because we love Him in light of all the mercy that He's given us. How could we not obey what He says? And on top of that, if I don't know something in light of all the mercy He has given me, how would I not desire to know it so that I could love Him better? See, this is our warfare. See, He tells us that we are to take every thought captive to obey God. Because your head is full of desires that desire to find pleasure in things other than God. And I must take them captive. What does that mean? I have a desire. I run it through the Word of God. I want to do something. I want to not do something. I run it through the Word of God. This is how I wage war. It's not... This is open to opinion. We just kind of do our own thing. No, if I'm thinking it, if I'm feeling it, I must run it through the Word of God because that's where truth is found. And so if I'm going to give you counsel, the most valuable counsel I can ever give you is this. And something I've noticed in my life that when I give this counsel, it's usually in the moment the thing that people want the least because it's absolute. See, my opinion can be rejected, and so can yours. But when you present information that's absolute, when you say, this is what God says, it changes the whole game. 
It changes everything. And so if I can set up in my mind that even this is opinion, then I'm in big trouble. I need to know exactly what God means by everything that's being said because I'm in a war and the weapons I use are the word of God. And so therefore knowing it is essential. Back to 1 John chapter 2. See, we as Christians are against lies. Do you know that? As a Christian, you're anti-lie. Do you know that to lie about something, to get something good, is anti-Christian? Did you know that? Do you know to lie on your resume to get a good job is not Christian? And can I tell you why it's not Christian? There's two problems, and we all need to hear this. Number one is, we don't believe with everything in us that God hates lying. God gave the Israelites ten laws right out of the gate. And apparently, lying is an incredibly big deal because He gave ten laws and one of them was, Thou shall not lie. Secondarily, When I lie on my resume to get a job, I'm also missing the importance of the providence of God. See, this is incredibly important for us as Christians in a worldview. See, we have a God that does not want us to lie on our resume because our God's in control, so we don't need to lie on our resume for Him to provide what we need because we serve a providential God. See, those who use lies to get good things do not believe in a providential God because I don't have to lie to get a good thing. Because my God is providential and He's sovereign and He's in control. Nothing is going to happen that God is out of control in. That He's sitting there looking like, "Uh uh-oh, what am I to do? You might be saying, Jeremy, why are you bringing this up? Because we live in a culture of lies. In our own heads, in the world around us. It lies. And what does it lie to do? To get us to want good things instead of the best thing, which is Christ. To trust Christ is supreme to all other things. When we think about loving, we are to give our love, that is our loyal devotion, our undivided attention, and our lives to full submission to God and His Word. Do you believe that? That that's the call of the Christian. Again, to give our love, that is our loyal devotion, our undivided attention, and our lives to full submission to God and His Word. This is why preaching and teaching is gloriously terrifying. Because if I have the responsibility to give you the Word of God and you're supposed to live in accordance with it, that's terrifying. And if your victory in this battle is dependent on getting this right, that's a terrifyingly huge responsibility that the pastor and the teacher has. Now praise God it is not dependent on me, but I would be a fool to think that I do not have a responsibility inside of this. That I can just say whatever I want, and it's okay. See, when we hide behind the sovereignty of God, we've missed the point of the sovereignty of God. I don't get to say what I do don't matter. Doesn't matter, not don't matter. Doesn't matter because God is sovereign. Because God is sovereign, everything I do should matter. And that's an important distinction for us to have in our lives. He goes on to say this. 
So do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So what do these sentences mean? First and foremost, what are the desires of the flesh? Well, to make it simple for you, it's covetousness. Last week I gave you a definition of idolatry. It is an extreme admiration, love or reverence, or submission to something other than God for the sake of comfort or some other temporal gain or satisfaction at the expense of eternal gain. Every person on the planet wants good things for selfish reasons, because that feels good. Hear that again. Every person on the planet wants good things for selfish reasons, because it feels good. You don't have to turn with me, but if you want to, flip a few pages back to James chapter 4. And I want you to hear the first three verses. In James chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, that you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel? You do not have because you do not ask, or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We love self-importance. We love it. We love self-glorification. We love self-accomplishment. We want to take things like marriage and children and money and position and power and education and religion and make it all about us. We want to take good things and make it about us as opposed to seeking the greatest thing, which is Christ, and being humbled and instead making all of these things about Him. So important for us to get. Why does God give us the gift of marriage to make much of him? Why does God give us the gift of singleness to make much of him? Why does God give us children to make much of him? Why does he give you money to make much of him? Why does he give you a position or power to make much of him? Why does he give you education, religion, on and on and on to make much of him? And to settle for making much of you is to take something that is good and settle for it as not being glorious, but instead, and I want you to hear this strong word, damning. Because all of those things can become God. Marriage, children, money, position, education, religion can become God. Good things that Satan uses to woo us to serve and worship, that is to give ourselves totally to. And who in the world is going to say, loving your children a whole lot is bad. But loving your children more than Christ is eternally damning. And some of you in the room hear that and you're shocked. But it's good. You're right. It is good. But just because it's good does not mean it can save. See, there's only one thing that saves. The supremacy of Christ in your life. Full submission to Christ. He doesn't invite men and women to follow Him half-hearted. He doesn't say, come as you are and do as you want. He says, come and die to the world and come and live for me. That's what he offers. And anybody who tells you any difference, lying to you. 
Jesus doesn't invite you into an easy life. He invites you into an impossible life without dependence on him. Oh, how important is it that we get Christianity right? He goes on to say this. So all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. So what are the desires of the eyes? It's excess or abuse of good things. Beyond what is reasonable, participating in what is prohibited, or seeking more than what is needed. Again, interesting categories. Marriage, money, food, alcohol, leisure, sleep, fitness, politics. All these things are good if submitted to God. They're all good. But we want to abuse good things because that's what our desires want to do. And so often our jealousy is in watching others abuse good things that we don't have possession of. We very seldom have a godly jealousy for seeing people glorify God with good things and want to glorify God as well with those good things. That's an important distinction. The Christian should see other Christians glorifying God with money by being generous and saying, I want that. Instead, we see people who claim the name of Christ abusing money and saying, I want to be able to do that as a Christian and not feel bad for it, because apparently they don't. This is an important distinction, not to beat people up, but to remind us we're at war and Demas was real. And Demas wasn't the only man, not the only woman that fell into that trap. But interestingly enough, he is recorded in Scripture and will be known for that until Christ comes again. And we must learn from his example. See, we cannot take good things and abuse them, give access to them. Again, leisure, sleep, fitness, politics, sex, marriage, money, food, all, again, good things, but must be done according to the word of God because the desire of our eyes is to abuse everything good for our enjoyment. And then the pride of life. This is bragging about accomplishments or sufferings Position or possession for positional advantage or superiority or for an excuse for why we don't obey. This is pride. I'd love to love Jesus like that, but my situation's unique. So I can't. Take all the time you want and find that in here. I'll wait. I'll wait as long as you need, because it's not here. My circumstance is unique. No, it's not. Woman who was married five times. Guy she's with now, not her husband. Same expectation from Christ as the married man with 2.5 children. And married and happy. Same exact expectation. Why? Because we're transformed. None of those things any longer identify us. What identifies us now is Christ. And so we have the ability to do things that other people can't do, not because of circumstance and situation, but because we have the Spirit of God at work within us and because of what Christ has done for us. And in light of his mercy, we can live in a way that is mind-blowing to the world. This is so important for us to get. See, when we desire to be made much of, to celebrate ourselves, to be superior we take God off his throne and we want his glory. 
See, Romans 11.36 is important. Everything you have is from him. And it's for his glory. That cannot be something we compromise in our life. Isn't it interesting in a portion of Scripture like Matthew 6, 1 through 4, we see that our acts of righteousness should be done in a way that we're not doing them to be seen by men, but instead doing them to be seen by God. Because to be seen by God and to enjoy God and to fellowship with God is supreme to the applause of millions of people. He's not putting you at a deficit there. He's saying that's where life is found. He's letting us know that living a life pleasing to God is supreme to living a life that a million people would stand and clap for you for 30 minutes straight until they can't clap anymore. Because the one who lives for Christ will be rewarded in eternity in comparison to something as pitiful as that in a way that is beyond your comprehension. And you must believe that because the Word of God teaches that. See, the Desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. This is what makes up this world that we must not love. Back to James, he tells us something in verse 4 that I hope everybody hears here tonight. In James chapter 4, verse 4, the word of the Lord says this, very strong language. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Since you become a friend of the world, that is, you pursue the world, you love the world more than me, you're my enemy. That's sobering. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's a lot on the line here when it comes to this whole world Thing. See, friendship with worldly thinking, worldly pursuing, is spiritual death. And you might be thinking, Jeremy, are you saying I can't have anything nice? Maybe. If you can't have nice stuff for the glory of God. And I don't know. But God does. You have to take it that serious. He looked at a rich young man, this is Jesus, and said, you need to give away everything if you're going to follow me and what did he tell jesus but i've been religious i've been good i've chased after good things does god not care that i chased after look i'm a good person and jesus said to him but you love something more than god you're right you've done good things but your problem is not that you do good things or don't do good things. Your problem is that something has higher honor in your life than God. There's something else that you would die for. There's something else that you live for. See, the devil is slick. I'm going to say something that may offend you, and if it does, so be it. I really don't care. But from Black Lives Matter to make America great again, are schemes of Satan to distract us from what is great and to want us to chase what is good. And what does he hide them under? Good things. Yes, black lives matter. Of course there's nothing wrong with America being great, but that's piddly in comparison to knowing Christ 
I'd rather die in a third world country and starve to death and have Christ than have anything else this world could offer me. And that has to be your position. Because if not, you will be reeled into really attractive, really nicely packaged ideologies that will distract you from Jesus and make you passionate about things that send people to hell. Good thing. Good thing. See, this isn't a political message. This is an eternal message. We must think properly as Christians. We must be known for loving Christ, not loving America. Which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with loving America as long as it's in its proper position. Because if somebody's confused whether you love America or Jesus more, shame on you. And I have no shame saying that. Shame on you. If somebody is confused about you loving anything more than you love Christ and you claim the name of Christ, shame on us. And the reason I say that is because there's been days in my life that that unfortunately is true. And so in light of that, we must think of Demas. We must ponder the question, have I counted the cost? When I think about Romans chapter 12, have I really thought about what it means to offer myself as a living sacrifice? Do I get it? Do I get that there's going to be a painful transformation in following Christ? Do I get that it will be painful when I'm being conformed to the image of Christ and no longer being conformed to this world? Do I know that? Am I ready for that? Do I know that I'm in a battle, in a warfare each and every day? Because this world has distractions on an assembly line care about something, anything other than Jesus, please. Be passionate about anything but Jesus. I will give you an endless. Satan has so many systems in play, dumping so many things to be passionate about on us as long as it's not Jesus because he hates God. He hates him. He doesn't care if you worship the carpet. He doesn't care if you believe in him. He doesn't care if you worship that chandelier right now. He doesn't care. Just don't worship God with everything in you. That's his passion. And he doesn't sleep. He's not lazy. He doesn't take vacation. He doesn't take days off. But our God is supreme. To all his efforts, all his wiles, all his intentionalities, all of his systems, God laughs at them because they have no authority. They have no power unless he gives it permission. So Christian, what do we do? We fight. And if you don't know him, I don't want you to be confused of what it is to be a Christian. It will cost you everything, and it will be fully worth it. There's great temporal comfort in fleshly pursuits. Great. Great temporal comfort. When we pursue sinful things, when we pursue good things, when we act upon those things, but do not be fooled. There is greater eternal delight and comfort by putting fleshly pleasures and sins to death and resisting them with everything in you. If you don't know him here tonight, trust in the work of Christ. Repent of your sins. In light of his mercy, say, God, I'm yours.
Do what you want with me. Do what you want with me. Take what you got to take. Give what you got to give. Do what you want with me. In light of your mercy. Because you've given me everything I need in your word to live for you. What Christ has done for me is enough. I'm going to repent of my sins. Trust in the work of Jesus Christ. Receive the Holy Spirit that will enable me to walk in accordance to this book. And by the way, that's an exciting life. That's a full life. That's the best life. And Christian, do they know you by your fruit? Do they know you by your pursuits? Is there anything that is jockeying for first place in your life? Put it in its proper place, even if it's good. Because you are most beneficial to all when Christ is supreme. Let us spend some time with God in prayer, and then when I pray, if the worship team would come up, and lead us in a song of celebration. Let us pray. Father, this was a hard teaching, but incredibly valuable for us to get. In America, it is so easy to be distracted. So many fleshly desires are fulfilled with so many options, and we find ourselves at times so much more wise than you, Father. Would you forgive us? Would you forgive us for our arrogance? Would you forgive us for our pride? Would you help us in our lives to make much of you in everything we do? Will you help us to live a life that shows you as supreme to all other pursuits? Father, you are glorious. You are awesome. You are worthy of all praise and all glory. We thank you for everything you did here tonight. We pray us in Jesus' holy and mighty name. Amen. If you would stand with us and sing a song of worship to the Lord.